Amen. Let's stand together. And I want us to read together from the scripture in Matthew chapter 7. We're back into the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read the first six verses of Matthew 7 together. Let's go in. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Today I want to speak from the subject, God honoring judgment. God honoring judgment. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It challenges us every time we come to it. And we pray that today we won't dismiss your word in any way, shape, or form. But Lord, we would have our ears attentive to what you would want to say to us by your word and by your spirit. So have your way in our midst and be glorified in this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. This scripture, Matthew 7, 1 in particular, has become uh, the the most searched for scripture that there is. Judge not, lest you be judged. Um, That has been the, the, that, that is the John 3.16 of this generation. (laughs) Judge not, lest you be judged. And as we, as we go into this word today, I I just want to say just a couple things before we, we actually go in. For me, this week has been difficult in looking at this scripture because I realized how much I have uh, frittered away the power of this word to my own life. Because it is so often abused and is used in so many ways that aren't scriptural, it was easy for me to push it aside. I pray that we won't do that this morning, that we'll hear the prophetic word of Jesus to his people today. The main idea of this passage is is simple. Jesus is warning us against being judgmental. That is to say, of trying to take God's place. And he's also calling us, at the same time, to a life of discernment. And that is a life of trying our very best to follow God's will. And so, as we go through uh, the scripture today, we're going to look at three aspects 
of God-honoring judgment, and they are these. Number one, God-honoring judgment is always, always uses a consistent God-ordained measure. We'll look at that in the first couple of verses. Secondly, God-ordained judgment begins with self-awareness and repentance. Somebody ought to say amen. I know I need to say amen. And thirdly, God-honoring judgment enables good discernment. God-honoring judgment enables good and right discernment. So let's jump into the scripture. First point is this. God-honoring judgment always uses a consistent God-ordained measure. Jesus starts in this passage, and we're coming back to the Sermon on the Mount. We took a little break for the last couple months as we went uh, through Lent and as we prepared for Easter and went to Easter. But we were, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount since the middle of September, and now we're coming back to this one sermon. This is the greatest sermon ever told. Amen? Don't get it twisted. This is the greatest sermon. It's not from any other pastor or prophet or anything else or bishop. It is this one from Jesus. And he's giving his word and he is changing the world in the mind of his disciples. This is a sermon to the disciples of Jesus. And he's talking to them about the implications of the reality of the kingdom of God has come. And what a difference that makes to the people of God, to those who would follow Jesus. And in particular, he is talking to them about what it means to be a community of God's people. So we come, we come to this verse, and I believe that this verse had to be a stunning verse for the ears of the disciples. Verse 1, do not judge, or you too will be judged. I believe that that had to stop some people right in their tracks. You consider what Jesus has already taught in the first part and in the middle part of this sermon in chapters 5 and 6. Jesus has given a whole new way of understanding the law of God. And what he did not do is lower the standard. Amen? Everywhere he talked about God's standard, he raised the standard. So in chapter 5, when he talks about the standard of you shall not murder, he says, yeah, you shouldn't murder, but not only that, when you call someone a fool, you're guilty of murder. We got a bunch of murders in this room. I know it's true. He says, not only shall you not commit adultery, but if you've ever looked at someone and lusted after them, you've committed adultery. In every instance, Jesus takes the law and he upgrades it to understand the true heart of God in what the law meant. And so he teaches us to pray. He teaches us to fast. He goes through all this different teaching. And now we come to this verse and he says, do not judge lest you be judged. And, and I'm just thinking the disciples saying, wait a second, judging is exactly what religious people do. If we're a good religious person, who were the best religious people? It was the scribes. It was the Pharisees. And they were all about judging. You're missing it here. You're missing it there. You're going to get in trouble because you're not living up to the standard. And Jesus comes in the middle of this sermon and he says, 
do not judge. Or you yourself also will be judged. It is a shocking reality that he lays on these first disciples. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, I took a lot of my, my uh, courses at Cuts, the Center for Urban Theological Studies. At the time, Cuts was at the corner of Old York Road and Hunting Park Avenue. They had a building right there. That building's still there. Um, and I was taking a course on homiletics, preaching, gospel communication. And I loved taking my courses at Cuts because at Cuts, you didn't have your regular just Westminster folks, young people like me just wet, in, wet under the ears with ministry. But you had a lot of people who had been in ministry pastoring for 10, 20, 30 years or more. And so when I took the courses there, I learned as much from the, my fellow students as I learned from the professors. But I'm taking this course on gospel communication, and I, it's a weeknight, say a Wednesday night, and I remember going into the building, and as I'm going into the building, there's a woman standing, sitting there on the stoop, and she is a homeless woman. She looks really bad, and her clothes are tattered, and it's just not a good look, and I'm focused on what I'm about. I'm going to learn how to communicate the gospel better. Don't necessarily have time to stop and communicate the gospel with this person. And so she's sitting there and, and kind of panhandling, begging. And, but I, I know what I'm about, and so I go into uh, the, the building, and I go into my classroom. And the way that the class went, people would do a sermon of about 20 minutes. And so the first person goes, gives a good sermon. The second person goes and gives a good sermon, and then there's a pause. Usually what happens is the professor would introduce the next person who was going to preach, but there was no introduction. So there's a pause. I'm wondering what is going on. And all of a sudden I hear from the back of the room someone coming in saying these words from James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meetings wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And I look around, and it's the homeless woman walking down the aisle with these words. Wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The young lady's name was Del Dietz. Some of you may know Del. Her name isn't Dietz anymore. She de-deeded her name as she got married. But this was, it was so powerful and stunning to me, this woman that I didn't have a minute for as I walked into the room. Now she's walking down the aisle and she's giving me God's word and teaching me about the way I discriminate and judge in a way that doesn't honor God. It's just so often what we do, but Jesus is calling us to make a radical departure away from a religious spirit. Amen? 
And, and, and here's where I've often missed it because so many people do use this verse as a way of saying, I can do anything I feel like doing. It doesn't matter. You can't judge me. People like to use it that way. But because people use it wrongly doesn't mean it still doesn't sting us as believers. And it should sting us. Verse 2 and 3 talk about reciprocity in judgment. He says, not only do not judge or you too will be judged, but he says, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 2. It's interesting because in the Greek, he actually uses the same word or the same root word three times. He says, with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. With the measure you measure, you will be measured. So there there is a, a powerful thing that Jesus is communicating to us, and that is this, that judgment and the way we judge others, there's reciprocity in that judgment. The way in which we judge, he says, That is the way in which you will be judged. There were rabbis in the first century who believed in terms of judgment, they would say that God has two different measures, two way he measures. One is by mercy and one is by justice. Which measuring cup do you want God to pour out on your head? Amen, brother. I hope you want mercy. I know that... If I simply get justice from God for my life, I am absolutely bereft of all hope. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for you except for the mercy of God. That when he pours out his judgment, it's poured out in mercy upon our lives. And he says, with the measure that you measure, you will be measured. With the judgment that you judge... You will be judged. This morning, as I was just praying over this message, the Lord brought to my mind Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul says these words starting at verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you, you who pass judgment do the same thing. Verse 2, he says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? I love verse 4 here. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. We have been led to repentance and to life in Christ, not by a crushing judgment that that simply puts us under the foot of Almighty God, but by His mercy and by His grace and by seeing His love, which we saw in the cross, and His power that we see in the resurrection that gives us hope for life. And leads us to repent of sin and come to Christ. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance as the people of God. 
John Stott puts it this way in commenting on these verses. The command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men or women by suspending our critical powers, which help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. You see, when our life consists in a primary way of judging those who are either in the church or outside of the church, and this is what we do. And I've already told you as a church in the past that I am a recovering judgeaholic. It's what I naturally do. It comes to me very naturally. And it is only by the power and the grace of God that I step back and say, hold on. Hold on, am I trying to be God right now? That's what Stott is saying. So there's a warning here against judgmental attitudes where we believe ourselves to be somehow superior to others. So here's a question to consider today. Is your life better characterized as being salt and light? Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus talks about being the salt of the earth, being the light of the world. Is your life better characterized as being salt and light or as being a judge? Now, what I'm saying is not how should your life be characterized, but what does it really look like? Salt and light bring positive energy and change and blessing to those that they touch. But the judge, the judge simply lowers the boom. What, is our li- what are our lives like? You know, in the coming months, we're going to make a move at New Life. We already have some great home groups, and that's always been a part of this church body. But we're making a, a move to make that more and more a part of what we do in New Life Church. That our desire would be that everyone who's committed to this body would be committed to a small group of other believers, 10, 15, 20 others in a small group setting. But my question as I think through that, what will that look like if in those small group settings that we are more like judges of one another than salt and light? God is calling us to love one another with the gracious love of Jesus Christ. Small groups are a way that will matriculate new people into our church body. People that begin coming here, we want to move them towards small group life. And if our small groups are more like places where people are feeling ostracized and judged, I wouldn't want to be in one either. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that that's the way they are. I don't believe that that's the way they are at all right now. What I am saying is that we need to emphasize the reality of the love of God being salt and light over being judges of others. Amen? Second piece here is that God-honoring judgment begins with self-awareness and repentance. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus gives a little parable. And I love this parable. Now, it's a pretty natural parable for Jesus. He was a carpenter after all, right? So in this parable, he talks about someone making a judgment, a person who actually has a plank in his eye. Now, 
Jesus uses hyperbole all the time when he tells stories and parables. And I don't know if, if you can kind of picture that for a moment, but imagine someone going around with a plank in their eye. I had a friend who said, you have a national forest growing out of your face. And you're trying to judge someone else who's got a speck, a speck of sawdust. In the carpentry, as Jesus is doing carpentry, there would be sawdust about someone has a speck on their eye. Someone else is judging that person who's got a national forest growing out of their face. He says, that's not going to work. That's not the right way to go. And, and so I want to talk about that as, as a condition that I'll call plank eye. Plank eye. Now, some of you know about pink eye. Many of you know it by personal experience. I know that I do. When I get pink eye sometimes, it, it's just nasty, y'all. It, it, you ever wake up in the morning and your eye won't open because of all the gunk that's on it? That is bacterial conjunctivitis, my brothers and sisters, also known as pink eye, also known as stank eye. But whatever you want to call it, it is a nasty condition. And although it, it's, it's not that big of a deal usually and can easily be cured if you get the right eye drops or whatever, um, it's very contagious condition. They tell you not to be around others. You've got to make sure you wash your hands and do all these things. When you have pink eye, you don't want to be up close and personal with someone that's got pink eye. Amen? And believe me, there's something worse than pink eye in this scripture. It's called plank eye. And you don't want to be around someone with plank eye. Someone that is totally unaware of their own sin, of their own issues, of their own mess, and yet wants to tell you all about yours. And wants to set you straight. And so when we look at this, we see that to be God-honoring in the way we discern and judge those around us, we need to begin with self-awareness and repentance. It's what marks the life of believers, not only in coming to Christ, but in terms of our entire walk with Christ. We see a great example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan confronts David in his sin. You remember that David had sinned as the king of Israel by having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed by sending him out in the army and telling all those around them to, to peel away. And so he knew that he would be killed. And so David, the king, does this. And it is months later when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan and that confrontation is a powerful one. As a part of it, he talks about, he uses a parable of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had cattle and, and had sheep and oxen. He had all of this livestock. The poor man only has one little ewe lamb. And in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 3, he says, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. This guy loved this little ewe lamb. It says it was like a daughter to him. 
And, of course, you know the story. The rich man doesn't want to use any of his stuff, and so he takes the one little ewe lamb of the poor man, and he sacrifices that for the guest who's coming into his home. And Nathan's not done talking, but David can't hold back anymore. And it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And you know Nathan's response. He says, you are that man. You're that man. David, the king of Israel, the judge over all of Israel, and yet he's walking around with plank eye, and now he's confronted by the prophet, and praise be to God, he repents in dust and ashes. Read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 32. David repents from his heart and understands the wickedness and evil that he has done before Almighty God, and he gets right with God. And it's only the mercy of God and the grace of God that allows him a new place at the table. He had committed murder. He had committed adultery. And God says, I'm not finished with you. I still love you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you're struggling with, God loves you enough to say, I'm not done with you. My love is for you. It is for now. It is forever. I'm not going to give up on you. God's love is just that kind of love. And so God calls us to a life of self-examinations, examination or plank-removing strategies. I'll call it that. Plank-removing strategies. So three things I want to say about how do you get the plank out of your own eye. Let me give you the ABCs of plank removal. Amen? Number one, or A, always get outside input. Many times I've done self-examination, and I've done self-examination on myself with no outside help. And guess what I ended up with? I'm not that bad of a guy after all. Man, I've got it together. I did a thorough self-examination. And I am the bomb.com. Look at me. Get someone close to you who knows you well, who knows the ins and outs of your life, and who is not afraid to tell you the truth. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just saying, you need to have those people in your life who are not in awe of you, who are not deferential to you in terms of your position or whatever it is. You need to have people around you who will tell you the truth about you. Always get outside input. B, be deeply aware of your motives. I say that because almost all the time we are not deeply aware of our motives. We easily ascribe motives to people around us. And the motive that we talk about that we have is always a pretty good motive. That is our surface motivation. But there's usually something going on under the surface that can be very different than that. I remember not long ago, uh, my wife uh, and I were talking about a decision that needed to be made and... um, I did not want to do anything that would cause my wife to think I was trying to persuade her in one direction or another 
in this decision. And so even though I had a, a strong feeling about the decision that should be made, I pretended that I didn't have any strong feeling at all. And so we went on and I thought, okay, she's going to make the decision I want, so I don't have to play my cards at all. But then she was going to make a decision that was different than the decision that I wanted. I said, ah, I said already that I don't have any strong feelings, so I need to keep up that hand. But is there a way I can covertly change her mind? And I went on my covert task of changing her mind. And at one point, my wife said to me, what are you really thinking about this? I'm like, oh, gosh, now I've got to deal with truth. Now, as we started... As we started the conversation about my motives, I said, but my motives were good. I did not want to manipulate you in any way. I went away and I prayed more about my motives and I said, no, that really wasn't my motive. My motive was I didn't want to appear like I was manipulating you in any way. My motive was I really want you to make the decision that I want. So be deeply aware of your motives. You need help with that as well. And C, A-B-C, C is create a gospel-shaped measuring cup. What in the world does that mean? It means that if, if you're, if you're going to do judgment, that your judgment is soaked in grace and is done for the benefit of others. A gospel-shaped measuring cup is not aimed at self-protection or protection of a system but it's aimed at the good of those around you. It's not rushed. No rush to judgment. It's not harsh and hard. It's not aimed at causing harm, but it's aimed to promote God's shalom, His blessing, His peace in the lives of others. The ABCs of self-examination Jesus is moving us to this place of examining ourselves. And he says at the end of that verse, in verse 5, then, when you've done that, then you are safe to remove the speck from your brother's eye, from your sister's eye. In other words, God wants us to be involved in the lives of our brothers and sisters in that way, but he wants us to come The right way. Amen? As a matter of fact, verse 5 is the only place in Matthew's gospel where he uses the word hypocrite to speak of disciples of Jesus. Usually he's using it as something, as a strong word against scribes and Pharisees and those who are pushing God's people away. But in this instance, if you are walking around with plank eye, not aware of your own sin, not repenting of your own sin, But judging those around you, he calls you and he calls me a hypocrite. Let's not be those people. Amen? Let's be those who love other people well. Last thing that we want to look at with this word, God honoring judgment enables good discernment. Verse 6, he says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you to pieces. Now, many of you are dog lovers in this room. I know that you are. So you're like, what do you mean? 
What do you mean, Jesus, don't give to dogs what is sacred? I do that every night at the dinner table. I give them my best food, right? Some of you do that. I know you do. But he's not talking about, and they don't understand dogs the way we understand dogs. It's not a beautiful pit bull or a labradoodle. Did I say that right? Labradoodle. It's, it's not some nice, cute little dog, you know, that you keep in your purse um, or some dog that you proudly walk along the road. The, the dogs that he's speaking about in first century Palestine were wild dogs that went all over the place. They were scavengers and they could be dangerous at times. And so he's talking about dogs. And of course, as a, a, a Jew, when he talks about pigs, pigs are unclean. Again, they're scavengers. Uh, Jewish people could not eat pigs. And so he's using these animals to say, these are some nasty critters that you want to stay away from. And yet, it's strange in a sense, in the midst of this Sermon on the Mount, for him to use this kind of terminology. Because if you'll remember, in chapter 5, Jesus is saying to us that you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy. He's telling people that... Uh, they should love even those who are consistently against them. He's saying this over and over again in this sermon. And then we come to this verse, Matthew 7, 6, and it seems to say on the surface something a little bit different. But what is he actually trying to say? I think he's making an application of what it means to discern rightly in how we use our talents, how we use our treasures, how we use our time. He's giving us a way to use what God has given us in the very best way. Let me use this illustration. There is a people group in northern Zambia called the Bemba people. And the Bemba people have a folk tale about a leopard who is terrorizing the community, the village, that lives in a tall tree right next to the village. And so the folktale goes this way, that uh, they try every means that they can think of to get this leopard out of this tall tree, and nothing ever works, and he continues to terrorize the community. People are afraid because this great leopard is in this tree. But then one man comes along, and he comes along with a goat, and he comes along with a dog, and he ties the goat and the dog to separate parts of the tree, and he puts before the dog grass. Now, dogs don't eat grass, uh, but he puts grass before the dog and tells the dog, eat this grass. And then he puts before the goat something called nsima, which is a staple of their diet, which is a a uh, corn-based food that people eat and also that dogs will eat, but goats don't eat nsima. And so he puts the grass before the dog Nsima before the goat, and he's telling them to eat, 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 eat what I put before you. And the leper's just looking down like, this dude is a fool. What in the world is he doing? And finally, the leopard can't take it anymore. Remember, this is a folk tale. And the leopard says, what are you doing? Put the sima before the dog and the grass in front of the goat. The man responds to the leopard with, A proverb, he says, he who would guide a man must draw near. 
They've been trying to get him out of this tree the whole time. And the, the leopard still doesn't draw near. But after a while, it's just too much for him to see the stupidity of what this man is trying to do. And the leopard comes down and he switches things up. But in that time, the man and others with him are able to kill the leopard and have safety for the community. So what in the world am I telling you this folktale for? What I'm telling you is, is this. There's a specific application of it. When you put in front of someone something that they have no taste for, don't be surprised that they don't eat it. You're wasting your time. Jesus in a couple chapters after this, in chapter 10 of Matthew, sends out his disciples into different communities to preach the gospel and do the work of ministry. And in Matthew 10 and 14, he says these words, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. In other words, Jesus is saying, if someone doesn't want you there and they've made it clear, go somewhere else. Use your time wisely. God has given you a mind to discern these things. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 puts it this way. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Listen. God is absolutely and totally unlimited. Amen? He is almighty. He is everywhere present at the same time. Nothing can stop his hand. And yet each one of us is severely limited. Amen? You ought to thank God for your limits. You can't be everywhere at the same time. You can't do everything that you want to do. You have limited resources in terms of time, talent, and treasure. And God says, I want you to use that in a beneficial way. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life doing things that have no profit. Don't try to feed to someone. Don't try to force feed someone something they're not ready for yet. So what do you do when people are resistant to the love of God and the gospel of Christ? You do something better than force feeding. You pray for them. You get on your knees, you bombard heaven, and you ask God to do what you'll never be able to do in a thousand lifetimes, and that is change a human heart. God is calling us to do that. Listen, as I close things today, judging others harshly can come very natural to many of us. I know it can come natural to me. God is calling us to measure with a measure of the gospel, of mercy and of love and of grace. My wife and I have been praying, and I'm excited about this next month as we as a church really push into prayer even more. We've been praying for revival. Amen? Revival. My wife showed me this video yesterday with Tim Keller, and he talks about revival this way. He says, the marks of true revival is an intensification of the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. So when revival is really happening, it's an intensity of the regular, normal work of the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? He means it's an intensification of prayer. 
There's an intensification of conviction. There's an intensification of repentance. There's an intensification of conversions. There is an intensive working of the Holy Spirit that cannot be denied. That is revival. It's the work of God. But I'm convinced that as we dig in moving forward with prayer, we need to learn deeply what Jesus is saying to us in these words. And be a people who exemplify the love of Jesus Christ, who are salt and light. Not getting it wrong and putting ourselves in the place of judges. One of my deep prayers is that God will do a work here at New Life Church, but all around this city and in our country in a particular way, if reaching younger people. Somebody should say amen right there. Okay, you can say amen. And, and in my heart and in my prayers, reaching people under 35, we have so many people who have left the church, so many people who have given up on the church, who have given up maybe even on God, but at least on the church, and, and I know and you know that if we're not tied to the church, we're not going to be tied to God very well. And so we are praying that God will bring in a harvest of younger people that in this city, young people will be reached in a powerful way. And listen, brothers and sisters, that won't happen if people primarily see the church and church people as the moral police that stands ready to judge when you slip and fall. It's the grace of God that I'm here today. It's the grace of God that you are here today. If you know Jesus Christ in the pardon of your sins, it is not because of your performance. It is because of the manifest love of Amen. I'm going to pray as I close that the Lord will make us even more a people marked by the grace, the love, and the mercy of our great God. Let me pray. Our prayer teams can come up. There will be people in the back and in the front as well. But let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing love of God. Lord, you have not treated us, as we heard earlier from Bob in Psalm 103, you've not treated us as our sins deserve. You've not dealt with us according to our iniquities. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But you've given us, in the words of Isaiah, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And Lord, we magnify you. Lord, help us to be a people marked as those who love and love well. Let us be a church where people come in and sense the reality of the love of God through each of us. 
Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.